Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest from all the way down under in Australia, Matt Boyle. Matt is the CEO and founder of Online to Offline, O2O, a company dedicated to helping businesses increase their lead generation activities, optimize their sales conversions, and maximize their profits. But that's only part of the story. O2O is committed to using entrepreneurship and job creation as a vehicle to end poverty-driven exploitation and sexual slavery by opening centers in developing countries and using them as community hubs. Matt lives on the Sunshine Coast in Australia with his wife and six kids where he spends his spare time training for strongman competitions. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, before we get into exactly what you do now uh, over at On to Offline, um, tell us how you got here. Are you a family? Are you from a family of entrepreneurs? Are you the first? And then obviously tell us about Thailand. Look, I've never, I just always had this passion for entrepreneurship. I, you know, through school, that was all I wanted to, all I wanted to do was run my own business and have the freedom to do what I want when I want. And back, back when I was younger was to make a, make a boatload of money. Um, so I've always had that kind of drive drive in me. We bought our first business when we were 21, um, which was probably one of the best learning experiences you could ever have. I did my shirt and lost everything and, you know, got, got a real slap in the face of reality around business and what, what it really takes to run it. But it was, you know, all these years down the, tr down the track, it was the best thing that ever happened to, to, to lose everything in your early 20s, not your late 50s when, when a lot of people do it. So it's been... Yeah, it's been, been been a lot of fun, and the the rebuild back then got me into sales, and that was what I needed to do to provide for my family. And at the the time, my wife's dad was battling cancer, and we would support him financially. So we had this burden of, you know, paying for his medical bills, paying and trying to recover financially. And then we also happened to have a lot of kids very very close together. So all of these kind of life circumstances just threw us into this position of I needed to sell to survive and to put food on the table. So I got very good, very quick at it. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Thailand. I know that's a big, uh, as a, one of the things that kind of drove you to, to found what you have found. And I would, we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I built, um, ended up building a sales training company and it was quite a profitable company and it was great, but it was horribly unfulfilling mm. that, you know, I just, I had this empty sort of pit in my stomach. And um, in 2015, I met this Aussie guy who was working over in Thailand with the Thai immigration police. And he was involved in anti-human trafficking and involved in doing rescues and rehabilitation. And we just got talking and just the more he kept sharing stories, the more something inside of me kept lighting up and going, I've got to see this. For, for, I've got to see this for myself. So eventually I, I convinced him to take me over with him on one of his trips and I spent three weeks with him and, and a group of people involved in rescuing these women out of brothels and kids out of brothels and just seeing 
you know, very, very unfiltered, very uncensored, the depravity of exploitation and human trafficking and, and you know, the stories were just phenomenal that, you know, everyone that we rescued, everyone that we met, the story was the same that they needed money. So they either borrowed money from someone they shouldn't, they took a job that they shouldn't, they did something that got them connected with someone that was going to exploit them. And now they were trapped in this, in this life. So it was just, just horrendous. And it got me back to Australia going, I've got to, I've got to make a difference. I've got to do something. And I realized when I was over in Thailand, the, you know, the, the biggest thing was I'm not cut out to do the rescues. I could, I was, I could not separate the emotion and like, like some of these, these guys that were doing it, that, were able to kind of look at the mission, focus on the mission, you know, achieve the mission and then be able to move on. I was just got way too connected with the individuals and with the stories and couldn't, you know, I could take my kids' faces off some of these kids that was rescuing and, and stuff. So I knew that I, I was not the guy to do the, do the rescuing on the, on the front lines. That was not, not what I, you know, not, not what I was there for. So I wanted to, to help fund them as much as I could. So I started donating money and we got to the situation that, you know, I'm donating everything we had. And my wife taps me on the shoulders saying, Hey mate, you've actually given the mortgage payment away this month. So can you ring the bank and tell them we're going to be late on the payment because we're, you know, you've given, given the money away. So that's when I kind of said, well, I've got to stop and think about how I can do this in a more sustainable way. And that's where, we sort of came up with the, the 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 business plan to actually put job creation at the centre of what we of what we do, and actually build these employment centres to create create these jobs and, and create the prevention of the trafficking, as well as helping on some of the um, cure and some of the rehabilitation. But really focus on that prevention is better than cure and create jobs. So they had opportunities other than traffickers and, and exploitation. Wow, that's an incredible story. I'm sure it's, you know, obviously you were impacted by that. Like you said, you were giving more mortgages. Um, so let's, let's kind of shift a little bit. I was just curious about that. I noticed I noticed that one in your profile that I was reading um, about the talent. So I had to ask. Um, one other thing you were focused on is um, obviously based on what you just said, uh, business is making an impact for a profit. Um, why, why do you think businesses should be focused on focused on, on making the impact before a profit? Because isn't isn't a profit what keeps us alive, especially during a downturn? Look, yes, but my personal experience, you know, I've been on this kind of evolution through business that I've had to be in survival mode. So, you know, it's how can I how how can I use next week's sale to pay last week's bills and playing that sort of chase, you know. That, that chasey where you're just trying to keep your head above water and, you know, everyone that's been in business has been through that, that phase. And, you know, if you can stick around that long enough, you get into this kind of success mode where now you're making money, you, you know, think things are good, but most people, most entrepreneurs are driven by something else. Mm. Most entrepreneurs, you know, making money is just a way of keeping score. So <clears throat> thank you, pardon. So when you're doing that and if you just sort of stop there, you don't get that fulfillment. You don't get that, that satisfaction, you know, that, that real kind of drive that what you're doing is making a, making a difference. So when I made the shift to sort of putting, making an impact first 
um, and and overlay that with the the business principles around I need to make it profitable, I need to um, do this. I've actually created this model where the more impact I have, the more profit I make. And the more profit I make, the more impact I have. So, you know, both of them are now very much ingrained in each other that one feeds the other, which feeds the other, and and they keep growing. So my my shift over the last few years, and look, we got tested and we, you know, not everyone needs to go through the the lengths that we we did. Like we lost our house and I went financial ruin for a second time making the transition because I I went too too emotional and and kind of threw out business logic for a period of time and just did not put the proper planning around how long it's going to take and how much money it's going to take. So we lost everything for a second time. But I've made everything back and then some more in, in a very, very short amount of time because it's this relationship of more impact I make, the more profit I make and, and vice versa. So, you know, for me now, it's just the way I do it because I want to make more profit because I want to make more impact and I want to make more impact. So I want to make more profit. So they're very much ingrained, ingrained in this symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, what do you think uh, is the biggest mistakes that people make when they, when they manage sales? You know, the, the biggest mistake I see is just inconsistency. Most people, when it comes to sales will not, you know, they, they, they want to be closing deals and they want the, you know, the, the fun stuff at the end, but they won't do the hard work leading up to it. They won't spend the time doing the follow-ups, doing their prospecting, doing the, the basics well. And, and that's, that's what the biggest part of what we actually solve in you know, is, is we, you know, created the processes and systems to do those basic disciplines at a high standard on a consistent basis. And, just through just through doing that, it enables enables people to achieve more achieve more in their sales and have more opportunities to do what they, they want to do best, which is being in front of front of prospects closing deals. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think it's it's uh, every, we're just especially Americans. I, I can't speak for Australians, but man, do we want that sweet treat at the end before we do any of the hard work to get there? Right, like we didn't go on the 10 mile hype to earn the, the, the sweet treat at the end. And it's, it's, but I think that's also human nature part of it. Um, let's continue on talking about sales if we can about, um, tell us how you can outsource sales without affecting the quality. That's something that I struggle with as somebody who's trying to get, hopefully train people at our staff to become salespeople. Look, the first thing is, is it's system over people. And mm -hmm. when, you, when you take that approach of going, you know, I, I, I studied a lot of Edwards Deming, who was process innovation and was sing, pretty much single-handedly re responsible for turning Japan's economy around after, after World War II. And he was, he was very much on, you know, let's continue to improve the process from there. So when I was sort of building these systems, it was, right, how can I build a systems approach? And then I, I sort of looked at it from the, what are all the tasks that need to happen on a daily basis to make it happen. And if we're talking about outbound sales, how many prospecting calls, how many follow-up calls, you know, how many people do I need to speak to? What's the level of qualification? And I would just kind of look at it from that point of view. And then I just kept unpacking the layers of going, well, how can I do that in a way that is either automated or outsourced? 
And I started taking all these different bits of technology and putting them together, like using LinkedIn to do prospecting, using, you know, a video that I could record once and have someone else send to me. So I'm getting that level of personalization, but it's done, done with someone else using voicemail drops to actually call prospects from my mobile number, leave a voicemail message and have them call back to replace telemarketing, use postcards, you know, and then I started looking at how can I build community in with what I'm doing. So I'm leveraging my time through through from that. How can I do a group qualifying event? So I just started to add all these different layers into the into the process and going, well, each one of these steps I can I can get someone else to do because they're not voice related, mm-hmm. which means I can quality control the messaging. I can sort of also quality control that outreach and I can also performance manage because I can look at I can look at the activities, how many messages they're sending, and then I can look at the results as far as how many people have responded and how many people have sort of been able to progress. I love <laughs> I, I love that. Thank you, thank you, pardon. Yeah, that's okay. I love that that it's uh, it's processes, it's systems, not people. Um, I wholeheartedly believe that uh, we implement a lot of systems in our office and it absolutely helps with the replication of, of, of everything and it keeps the quality under control. Um, what, is the, what has been the biggest shift that you've seen maybe in the last decade in, in sales? The biggest shift is salespeople are now far more interested in, in having conversations than what they, that what they used to be. They, these days, because of the internet, people, you know, they, they consider a qualified lead as someone that's walking up to them with their credit card in their hand going, here, take my money. And that the art of the influence and the art, you know, if you go back to the old school sales trainers like um, um, like Brian Tracy and Zig Ziglar and, and all that kind of stuff where, you know, these guys were rocking up to knocking on people's doors trying to sell pots and pans and they, they would sort of, the, the art of the sale there was to create the need and to, to establish value and to build credibility. And all of those things now, you know, aren't being done by the salespeople anymore. They, you know, all they focus on is give me the order and, and take it from there. So that's, that, 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 that's a massive shift. And it's something that I, I hope over time people will realise how important being able to have those conversations are because it's so impactful to be able to do it. And it puts a, especially with the times we're heading into now, it puts the the outcome of a sales department back in their control rather than in the hopeful basket. Amazing. Yeah. It's been quite the shift. I agree. I mean, then just, and it's, it's getting faster and faster and faster. Um, do you think it's on that note then, do you think it's easier or harder to manage uh, the growth sales of growth? compared to 10 years ago. I got to imagine it's it's easier. It's look, it's easier because if you do the fundamentals right and consistently, you've got a massive advantage over over the majority where you know back back when I was say started selling cars like nearly 20 years ago, I knew I was going up against four or five other quality salespeople that were well trained, well disciplined and had a good process. So you, you knew you had to be at the top of the game. I go into a car yard now and I know I'm going up against amateurs. So anyone that walks in, if they're qualified, they're buying my car. So it's a lot, it's a lot easier if you're that way inclined. Where the challenge is at the moment, though, is a lot of management 
you know, a lot of the sales attitudes are driven by management. And so it's actually getting the, the leaders to understand that we need to look at this from a different view. We need to take a slightly longer view. We need to invest more time and resources into areas that they can't necessarily see a result straight away and, and have them to have the confidence of the belief that that's where, that, that's where we need to spend our time in order to, to sort of drive those results. Yeah, yeah. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, I, I, I don't know what the economy is like down there. I, I, I'm interested certainly in an in a, uh, Australian point of view, uh, but I got to imagine we're close to the same boat. It seems like since we're mostly a global economy at this point, where do you see it heading and what do you think small businesses, uh, business owners should, what should they be doing to prepare if, if there is going to be a downturn? Certainly we're of the opinion in the United States. Isn't there? Look, I, we're, we're certainly accelerating into uncertainty, you know, and we're accelerating into what I'm going to call a thinning of the herd that there is just going to be a lot of businesses that won't survive the next couple of years. And, and, and that, and, you know, I look at that as a, as a good thing, say in the Australian economy, when COVID hit, the government threw an absolutely insane amount of money into the into the economy and floated a lot of, you know, kept a lot of businesses afloat that shouldn't be in business, which has created this delusion of what it really takes to be successful in business. So there's, there's going to be a lot that don't survive. But my planning over the last few months has been how can I how can I continue to grow my business where my cost base for my team is going to be going to go up by twenty percent? So I need a factor that factor a twenty percent increase in my you know in in my my staffing staffing costs through from there. You know through other inflation. Now my business is fairly immune to you know other other resources. We run fairly thin outside of outside of staff, but it's going all of my other you know, all of my other sort of, you know, costs, how can I, how can I sustain with their costs going up by 20%? But how can I also do that in a market where my clients have got 40% less money to spend? So how can I maintain my profit margins with a, with a higher cost base, be competitive and, and have a product that is low, you know, perceived to be, to be value, so perceived to be a lower price point than their alternative? and be able to sell it in an economy where spending has been reduced. So we've spent a lot of time the last three or four months with my, my leadership team, looking at our programs, looking at our products, looking at our marketing and getting prepared, getting prepared for that. So a big part of that has been, you know, that in that organization, it's just being really efficient, being really clear and looking at our value proposition inside the market, in, inside the marketplace and, you know, because of all that, I'm actually quite excited about what's going to happen because, you know, we, I think we're getting better at articulating the fact of we can help businesses do more with less, which is exactly what's needed at the moment. So, um, you know, but it's because of that planning where if you had asked me that four months ago, we would, I wouldn't have had that clearer vision. So it was a lot more uncertainty. So, you know, planning and looking at how to, how to reposition with a higher cost base and a you know a lower price threshold is is going to be critical. Yeah, it really will be. Yeah, 
the parallels are there 100%. So I hope everybody's taking that to heart who's listening. Uh, we're coming up on the half hour here and two questions I like to ask. Uh, well, one question I like to ask every guest is uh, knowing what you know now and if you could go back in time to when you first started your business, what is one piece of advice you'd give your former self? Believe in myself. That simple. That simple. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> and you had that so quick. Oh, it's, I, I get asked it regularly. Yeah. And, and, and like similar questions of what would you do, do different and everything that I, everything that I did that took me longer to get where I am now, where I delayed on decisions, where I kind of, you know, half committed to, to certain projects and certain things all came back to that self-belief and that, you know, doubting and that little voice in your head that says you're not good enough, you're not ready, you're not, you're not, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this. If I had my time again, I would have silenced that voice a lot sooner and just focused on doing, you know, focus on implementing what my instincts told me were right. Yeah, lovely. I love clear, concise answers like that. Uh, it means, you know, it, to me, it means that you are confident, obviously, and you've thought about it before. So I really appreciate that. Some people give me like five minute answers. So those, those are good too, but yours is a breath of fresh air, Matt. <laughs> uh, good, I appreciate it. Yeah. If people uh, want to find and follow you and what you do and how you help others, um, especially over in Thailand and all of that, where can they find and follow you? So they can go visit. Um, we've got a little scorecard we put together, which helps identify some of the strategies that you can use to grow your sales and, and utilize some of our services. And that you can find that at the salesgrowthscorecard.com. Um, or you can go look at my our other website, which is online to offline. So that's O-N-L-I-N-E-T-O-O-F-F-L-I-N-E. And that's .com.au. Beautiful. Matt, thanks you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for all of the, all that you're doing to help people in need, as you talked about. And uh, we wish you nothing but the best. Likewise, appreciate it. Thanks for having me.